from the Gospel according to St. John, the second chapter, beginning with verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle, he also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. I have made a discovery about myself, and it may not come as a surprise to you, but when it finally dawned on me, it was both illuminating and, well, and scary. I spend a lot of time in my own head, or as we like to think of it in academia, doing reflection. So, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised. Over the past four or five years, I've grown increasingly angrier. I'm not proud of it. I mean, in fact, it makes me really uneasy. I've taken antidepressants for years, not so much to keep me from feeling sad, but to help keep me from spiraling into deeper bouts of ill temper. So, in the interests of full disclosure, I'm temperamentally suited to facing the world with rage as one of my limitations. I know that, but the recent past has pushed even those boundaries. And I... I have to be honest with you, I'm uncomfortable admitting all of this so publicly. In fact, the whole thing makes me feel extraordinarily vulnerable saying it to you out loud. But it occurs to me that if we're ever going to destigmatize mental illness, people like me are going to have to be honest about the fact that it's part of how our bodies and minds are constructed. Now, we're getting better as a society in framing mental illness as a, as a health problem. But there are still lingering feelings among us that cause us to see it as some form of weakness, um, a defect in character. 
Now, if you suffer from depression, you just need to think happier thoughts, right? Instead of dwelling on the negative stuff all the time. I mean, some people still think that way, don't they? Suck it up. Try, maybe try meditating or, or, or yoga. Maybe take a class or something. I mean, you got to get on with your life, pal. Illness in general often carries with it some form of social opprobrium. I mean, it feels like there's a kind of a cultural undercurrent that if you have a health problem, it's because you don't take good enough care of yourself, right? You lack the willpower that normal people should cultivate. So many illnesses, mental or bodily, are implicitly treated as moral failings, defects that you should never suffer from in the first place, and if you do have them, well, then you should just stop having them, right? Eat more vegetables, exercise more, stop eating so much, fill in the blank, red meat, processed food, ice cream and Twizzlers, wear more sunscreen, don't drink so much beer and soda, cut down on your media intake. I mean, you've, you've heard it enough. I mean, you probably thought it yourself. Now, that's not to say that we don't have any responsibility for our mental and physical health. I mean, we do, but, but, but so much of how we struggle with life is already formed in us by our genetics, by our upbringing, by social messages delivered at lightning speed, all of this sort of beneath the horizon of our awareness. So I'm aware that I'm, my own inclinations toward fury are there. I mean, it's been a part of my life for years. As I say, I, I take medicine for it. And, and by and large, it's, it's in check. But I mean, these past four or five years, I've noticed my anger steadily rising. And not really from the deep well of my own depressive tendencies, but, but from somewhere else entirely. Maybe you've noticed it in yourself. I mean, when I heard about the Unite the Right march in Charlottesville back in 2017 in August, I was, I was furious. Jews will not replace us. Good people on both sides. I mean, white supremacists marching with tiki torches down the avenue in Virginia. I mean, I gotta tell you, it made my blood boil. When I heard about Congress trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act, leaving millions of people without health care, I was livid. Sitting on the board of Kentucky Refugee Ministries and hearing meeting after meeting how we were fighting. Stephen Miller and his minions to be able to welcome new friends like Muhammad and Allah into our country from war-torn regions of the world. But I just I couldn't stand it. When I heard we were giving even bigger tax breaks to the richest individuals and corporations in our country, I got a mind telling you, I, I couldn't even see straight. When the, the heartbreaking pictures of ice vans secretly rounding up people who've been here for years because they had a DUI back in the 90s or breaking up families by deporting one or both parents. And when I saw little children forced to stay in cages without adult care, sleeping on concrete floors with mylar blankets, it was, I mean, it was all I could do not to completely lose my mind. When they kicked trans people out of the military, I was, I fumed. After seeing the videos and hearing the stories of Ahmad Arbery and Rayshard Brooks, Daniel Prude and Elijah McClain, George Floyd, 
after hearing about the failure of the LMPD and the shooting of Breonna Taylor, after seeing people labeled as enemies of the state because they have the temerity to claim out loud that black lives matter, I was just so mad. Furious. And then, sort of, upon realizing that all of these things were if not initiated by the former administra administration, then sort of actively cheered on by it, I, I felt like my blood pressure was going to prompt a stroke. I don't know if you felt any of that, but it's been tough for a lot of people. And it finally occurred to me that I was walking around angry all the time. And it further occurred to me that having that much disgust in my body was taking a toll on me. I mean, it just scared me. I don't know about you, but I, I grew up being afraid of anger. Uh, thinking that it was sinful. And not just anger directed at me, but anger in general. I mean, I got anxious when I heard my parents fighting. Or when one of my siblings got in trouble. I mean, I still cringe when I see people shouting at each other on television. Now, whether anybody ever intended to, to teach me, I learned from very early on that anger was a sin to be avoided. And now that I'm older, I, I, I know it's possible to be afraid not only of the anger that we see in others, but of the anger that lives in our own minds and our own bodies. I mean, anger can be a fearsome thing to witness in other people, but perhaps even more, to feel it burn within you is a fearsome thing. I mean, that's why this whole cleansing of the temple thing was kind of a difficult story for me to understand growing up. I mean, if anger is a bad thing, then... How do we explain Jesus kicking over the tables of the money changers, sort of Indiana Jones style with a whip and everything? I mean, he's obviously furious. But, I mean, that can't be right, can it? I mean, because Jesus is all serene and loving and looking earnestly into people's souls, wouldn't he? I mean, how can be Jesus be angry? Well, we should probably explore that just a bit. As I've said before, it's important to understand the, the anthropology and the sociology of the world in which Jesus found himself. As a Galilean, Jesus grew up in an environment of increasing political tension between Caesar's man in Galilee, Herod Antipas, and everybody else, the peasants. Among the causes for this were Antipas' desire to rule over a, a more cosmopolitan territory, which prompted him to undertake the construction of two urban centers, the cities of Tiberias and Sepphoris, both of which were built using forced labor. I mean, in essence, Antipas sort of reprised the role of Pharaoh and made slave once again of God's people, all to satisfy his own ambitions. And to fund these expansion projects, Antipas leveled extraordinarily harsh taxes on peasant farmers and fishermen. 
forced labor and heavy taxation, which made Herod look like a big shot, as you might well imagine, met with great resentment from the peasantry. Moreover, Herod's retainers, uh, wanting to pad their own pockets, they offered loans to family farmers who were sort of struggling to make ends meet, while at the same time trying to satisfy the demands of the king. And so as economic pressure grew, more and more loans were foreclosed on. Peasants knew very well, according to Richard Horsley, that many of their number were being transformed from freeholders farming their own ancestral lands into tenants of the wealthy rulers and their officers who had taken effective control, ownership, of those lands. Now, this model of economic oppression through indebtedness, I mean, it wasn't just a Galilean problem. It had taken hold among their cousins in, Ju in Judea as well, to the south. But in Judea, the problem was compounded by the complicity of the temple high priests who also took their share of the spoils in the form of temple taxes. And because the temple system was headed up by Roman collaborators, uh, that is to say, Herod the Great and subsequent Roman governors of Judea, of Judea like, let's say, Pontius Pilate, they appointed the high priest, and not necessarily based on theological prowess, but on socioeconomic promises made. And so as a consequence, the rulers of the temple owed their power and their status to Caesar. So when Jesus storms in as a fire-breathing prophet, he's engaging in a demonstration meant to condemn a system that claims God's sovereignty in theory, but in practice behaves as though Caesar's the boss. Indeed, the, the, the system participates in the exploitation of the very people that it's supposed to protect and serve. So, in going to the temple to stage his protest, Jesus calls into question both Roman imperial rule and the religious system of the Jewish power broker collaborators that enabled it. All of this is made more grievous in as much as both political and religious forces flourish on the backs of the most vulnerable, all but stripping them of their dignity. And because of the temple doing so with the apparent endorsement of God. And so you can imagine how fraught the social, political situation in the ancient Near Eastern Palestine was at this point. The peasants were being fleeced by the, by the, the, the government and also by the people that they go to to represent them to God. And so consequently, by the time Jesus shows up with the whip of cords, there's a great deal of bitterness and Jesus is ready to channel that rage. Now, don't let anybody fool you. When, when Jesus went into the temple that day, it was an explicitly political act. It was an ancient Near Eastern version of John Lewis marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. So knowing that the people who are the most vulnerable are the ones getting fleeced by the folks in power, maybe the question shouldn't be, how is it that Jesus can be angry, but rather, how could he not? I mean, he used to think that 
Jesus' love may, means not only a, a light at the end of a sometimes dark tunnel, but that Jesus' love is the light that makes everything shine in the tunnel. Which is to say, I used to think Jesus' love was a gift that sort of always makes you better. But unfortunately, I've come to realize that what I believed in was a love that sort of affirmed my own white middle-class existence. It meant that my faith didn't require that much of me in my own estimation. And as far as anybody else I knew was concerned, it was a love that allowed me to focus on myself and the happiness of those closest to me without ever prompting me to think too heavily about the non-middle-class white existence of other people. Jesus' love, I thought for many years, was sort of my own ticket to the party. And the fact that I didn't deserve that ticket was the practical limit of my understanding of divine love. God showed me grace. But that also meant that other people were just going to sort of have to claim their own ticket. I mean, I'd help as much as I could, but when it came down to it, you got your salvation, I got mine. But then, in a dangerous move, I, I, I started reading the Bible more thoroughly. And I saw this consistent theme emerging. Turns out, Jesus actually cares about the people who weren't born with all the advantages that I enjoy. <laughs> and no, I, I, I don't mean that Jesus cares for everybody. So, of course, Jesus cares for the disadvantaged. No, no, I mean... That as I began to read scripture, it became increasingly clear that Jesus holds a special place in his heart for those who are abused by everybody else. The poor, the foreigner, the sick and the despairing, the widow, the orphan, the weak, the outcast, the prisoner. Jesus cares about them all in a really intense way. So much so, for example, that his fury with the injustice that formed these people, people's lives is the primary reason that he goes into the temple and starts kicking over tables. Now that anger, anger at injustice, is not only not a sin, sometimes it's the most faithful response. I mean, there are people who need to hear about Jesus' fury with a world in which terrified refugees are turned away. And, and anger that burns hot against those who would mistreat women and minorities. A, a wrath unafraid of the rulers of this world who abuse the poor. <coughs> who lead the cheers of hatred against Muslims and the undocumented. I mean, there are all kinds of people who need to hear about a Jesus raising an arm against injustice, against bigotry, against a, a, a world in which black parents lie awake at night in fear of what might happen to their children on the way home from school. A burning resentment that no matter how far they get in this life, black people are never so far up the ladder that all it takes some blue flashing lights and a pistol from being reduced to something less than human by people who don't respect their dignity and their humanity. I mean, if you happen to be one of the people kicked to the curb by the folks in charge, then Jesus' anger down at the temple in our text for today may just be what love sounds like to you. 
in the movie uh, Wonder Woman, Steve Trevor, who's a downed American pilot and spy, tells Wonder Woman that he, he needs to leave the island of the Amazons, as, as idyllic as that was, and he needs to head back into World War, into the World, uh, world War I. And when she asks him why he wants to return to something so dangerous, Trevor says, my father once told me, he said, if you see something wrong happening in the world, you can either do nothing or you can do something. And I already tried nothing. So growing up, Fearing anger as sinful, I, I think I could say the same thing. If you see something wrong happening in the world, you can either do nothing or you can do something. And believe me, I've already tried nothing. <laughs> and the Jesus who marched into the temple full of righteous fury and anger, I think he would like that. And that's a Messiah I can get behind. And more importantly, I think that's a Messiah the world needs. Because after all, who, who wants a Messiah unwilling to kick over some tables every now and again? <laughs> Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.